Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Pod Me If You Can. This is Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews by David and Lloyd. An Australian podcast on your favorite movies. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can. I'm David Farrell. And I'm Lloyd Hughes. And welcome back to Michael Keaton Month. All month of February, we are dealing with Michael Keaton-specific films. If you go to podmeifyoucan.com, you'll find our other Michael Keaton films for the month. Uh, Birdman is today's topic. It's uh, very Oscar-nominated. Michael Keaton is a favourite to win Best Actor for the very first time. Uh, Just a heads up, there'll be a lot of spoilers coming up for, for Birdman. If you haven't seen the film or you don't mind having it spoiled... You know, make your decision now, because uh, we will be spoiling it. There's certainly an ending we need to talk about, isn't there, Lloyd? Absolutely. Just so you know, guys, uh, Dave and I thought of doing Michael Keaton month well before um, Birdman just blew up and Michael Keaton's now winning all these awards. Uh, You know, we we decided to do a Michael Keaton month only because I think it's because we did Nicolas Cage week and we were deciding on uh, which actor should we dedicate a whole month to. And I think it's just because we had that amount of DVDs or something like that. Um, We were like, oh, Michael Keaton will do. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like Michael Keaton's consistently good. Like he rarely turns in a bad performance. And so like he'd be a great person to look at. And he's done, of course, so many films, 80s, 90s, today, you know, crossed a lot of generations. And now seeing him in Birdman is like the pinnacle of his career, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, look, uh, fantastic. He's so watchable. You completely get immersed in the film. I think the fact that you're in this, um, that the scene is, of course, uh, like a Broadway show. Mm -hmm. So um, you're you're stuck backstage and on stage and following these people around they don't go home you are stuck in this one environment with them really i mean despite a few trips to the bar and uh, things like that it's pretty much that's that's where you live you're completely immersed it's in what the, they're it's the doing. one take strategy as well that the director employed in this movie that really projects you in an uh, in a certain energy and uh yeah we're seeing like it, this isn't a new thing like Hitchcock did it with Rope, and the first cut you see in Rope is, uh, you know, really a- a- effective. You know, you're just like, oh wow. And there are a few cuts in Birdman, in particular with that firestorm coming out of the sky. There's some, yep. yeah, something like that. Then we cut, but it it just interjects you into a type of energy. And I think because it's a European, well, the director's Mexican. I'm pretty sure he's Mexican. Uh, it really projects you into a sense into like a european style story and i think it's been it'll be too much for a lot of modern audiences i just want to give a quick shout out i saw this with my brother josh my brother's girlfriend sam and my uh, good friend andrew and only one of us and i don't want to say who absolutely hated the movie walked out went to the bathroom for ages came back and was trying to look at their phone they couldn't stand it you know um they they just thought it was too ugly and i hear a lot of reactions like this but if you look at um it's rotten tomatoes count now it's like at 97 percent and there is a good reason why this movie has a lot of praise i personally really really love this movie i thought it was absolutely fantastic i do think and we're going to get into this dave it's a very angry movie but it never loses hold of the main character and i think the biggest success of this movie is that it projects you into the main character you're literally inside his head they use the various tools such as voiceover 
over. They bend the reality of the film, and but you're inside Michael Keaton's head, and I think that is an incredible monument of success of um, of cinema. I think if you can ever reach that level of filmmaking, you're at the highest level. You know. <laughs> yeah, there was that. I'd love to guess who was looking at their phone, but I won't like embarrass them. Um, <laughs> first of all, there was this. The first time I thought, like you mentioned, the Alfred Hitchcock uh, first time they cut. The first time the camera moves away from Michael Keaton in this film, it starts following his daughter Emma Stone's character, uh, and Edward Norton, and I Edward think, Norton, yeah. f- for a costume fitting. And uh, the first time that happened, I was like, "Oh, okay, we're not just going to stay with Michael Keaton," because it felt very much like his movie, and I didn't know if we were going to ever like leave him. You yeah. know what I mean? Like if this was going to be completely him, a hundred percent of all the scenes. But, like, when that happened, that was the same sort of shock for me. Wow, okay, just leaving the main character, yeah. Yeah, because I'd really... I, th- I thought that we were going to stay with him. You know, we're seeing everything from his story and, and his point of view. You're hearing his voiceovers and things like that. To suddenly kind of wander away away from him, it's like, oh, but that was what I was invested in, you know? It's the yeah. same sort of thing as Psycho. You know, somebody's killed off who's the main character, and you're kind of like, oh, whoa, why did I invest that time? But to a much smaller extent here absolutely i think all those sub characters were given uh you know were immensely rich and given great moments to shine uh, i just love that part they were they were very well written and i, I think a little bit more of naomi watts because I, I just love naomi watts i think she's fantastic and i'm not just saying that because i'm australian and zach galifianakis who i think does an incredible job here but I, I think every um actor was given these really wonderful moments even emma stone who i heard made this in a break of spider-man 2 the amazing spider-man 2 that's incredible Incredible. She comes in and just, you know, ro- dominates uh, a few monologues, you know, it's fantastic. Well, let's talk about the Oscars. So it's been nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Michael Keaton, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Edward Norton, Emma Stone is nominated for Actress in a Supporting Role, The Cinematography, which I think it will get, The Director, which I think it will probably lose to The Director of Boyhood, I think it'll probably get some sound editing and sound mixing, which it's nominated for, and possibly original screenplay, because it was just so funny, as well as quotable, as well as enjoyable. Um, Whereas Boyhood, which is the other big film of this year, and the Oscars, um, I feel like it wasn't as well written as this one was. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm going to say Best Picture will be Boyhood, Best Actor will be Michael Keaton. I'd love to see Edward Norton get up for this, but I don't know that he will. I don't know about Emma Stone either. But I think cinematography and screenplay, as well as the sound. Did you did you enjoy the drums? Uh, the soundtrack, I think, was one of the reasons why it turned off a lot of the viewers who weren't used to this. I think it's a very subjective soundtrack because you're again inside the head of Michael Keaton, and not only does the whole camera work and editing, uh, you know, confined to that sort of strategy, but also the soundtrack. And some people thought it was a bit pretentious. I loved it. It the reality of it bent and twisted like you see the actual drummer on the streets and then you see the drummer um in the kitchen a place that they're not supposed to be and that really plays into your head and i think one of the great qualities of this film is how it becomes dreamlike as well like the reality is peeling away and the film itself is bending and twisting into a dreamlike narrative and uh, it's so well crafted so uh long answer to your question dave i loved it (laughs) yeah the the only scene i thought it was too much in i enjoyed it as well 
But there's a scene where Edward Norton and Michael Keaton are walking on the street and I think they're walking to the bar. And I noticed the drums coming in louder than the dialogue. Yeah. It just felt too much. Like, I wanted to hear what they were saying. I felt it was important to the story. And the drums were too much in that scene for me. And I know it creates kind of a Streets of New York vibe, which is fine. But that's the only scene I really noticed. And is that just because of the volume or because just having that drummer there? Do you reckon the volume should have been lowered? I think volume. Okay, sure. And I don't don't think it was the cinema I was in because every other scene was fine. I think it was just the volume in... Like, it was too overbearing in that one scene. Just with... um Times Square and everything like that. Dave, you've been there. I've been there. I've actually seen the play, the Book of Mor- Morgan, oh, Book of Mormon. Mormon, at the Eugene Theater, which might be the um, the theater um, that's characterized in this movie. I'm not too sure. I'm not too good with the theater names. And I, I think this film captured the the intensity of the streets. Like it just felt alive. Felt like New York. All the crazy things going around in there. And I, I think it's fantastic. It looks really good, especially when Michael Keaton has to. To, you know leave his robe there because his robe's caught in the door and he walks the streets and what's particular about that scene is the sound of everybody some people are screaming at him swearing at him some people are in praise of him you know and just the chaos of michael keaton he's just like crap i gotta get to this play you know his eyes and i love michael keaton Keaton's performance, his eyes, there's just something about he's possessed or something like that. Like, it feels like he's in hunt for something, like whether it's ego or to live the older days as he was as Birdman, you know, to relive the glory days sort of thing. Or is he reaching for something else? And I don't think he knows what he's going for. And I don't think we know what he's going for. And there's just only Michael Keaton and his eyes and his possession and how he moves can capture that. Absolutely, and that's clearly why we're doing Michael Keaton month, (laughs) isn't it? I saw the bit where he gets a real gun. I saw that coming. Yeah. When there's the comment about how he's got the red bit at the end of the gun and it's fake, uh, Edward Norton kind of says to him, get a more realistic gun, you know, have some self-respect or whatever he says. When he's lying there, his uh, ex-wife, I believe she's his ex-wife, Uh, the mother of Emma Stone, comes in a few times into his dressing room and she's a very kind of ghostly figure in this, like almost a hallucination. I don't know how many people would get along well with their exes like that, but okay. (laughs) When he's lying there during the final performance, he's lying there as if it's his funeral. He's got his arms across his chest. And I I leaned over and I said, this reminds me of Black Swan. Now, have you seen Black Swan? I have not seen Black Swan. Okay, in Black Swan, some spoilers for Black Swan here, but ultimately I can't compare them without saying. In Black Swan, it's very much about doing a perfect performance and then the idea in Black Swan is that Natalie Portman's character is going to kill herself um, at the end. Having perfected it, everybody loving it, opening night, and then she'll die, having done the perfect performance. And obviously she won Best the Best Actor Oscar for her performance, Best Actress, rather, for her performance in Black Swan. And so this has been compared to that on a number of websites. I, I had one uh, I was just looking at, uh, 10 Reasons, Black Swan and Birdman are actually the same movie. <laughs> There's quite a few very notable uh, connections there. It's at hardinthecity.com, just a quick shout-out for them. And I very much kind of read the same sort of thing into it. It very was very similar it reminded me a lot of black swan and to the point where i leaned over and i said 
this reminds me of Black Swan to my wife who I was watching it with. She hadn't seen Black Swan and I think it was lost on her, but <laughs> there's this element of the Mexican director who I'm going to try and pronounce his name. Let's see how I go. Alejandro Gonzalez E. Nayitu. E. Naritu. Let's try that. Uh, that's Spanish pronunciation there. Um, he does this Mexican realism. Have you read about that? No. Okay, so I guess Mexican realism is uh, where elements of fantasy kind of enter these stories. Magical realism, if you will. At the end of the movie, the very final shot we see of Emma Stone, which unfortunately was in the trailer for Birdman, for those of you watching trailers before movies, where she looks up instead of down and you sort of imagine that perhaps Michael Keaton is flying. Yep. That, that, that's magical realism, I suppose. If he really can fly, if he really has telekinesis, if he really has the ability to have objects fall from his staging. At the beginning of the film, he's, he's levitating, isn't he? Yeah. No, well, I, I saw a lot of Fellini in this as well, which wasn't mentioned at all in the reviews I read, uh, in particular Eight and a Half, where, you, again, that dream state, you're inside the head of this character and um, the very you know fabric of reality is bending and twisting um but like I, I think a clear establishment of what was real and what wasn't was when he's floating back to the theater flying back to the theater and the taxi man runs after him and he's muttering all these actors think the world revolves around them you know so clearly he was in a taxi cab the whole entire time <laughs> but as well there's that scene where he's telekinetically throwing things around his office and Zach Galifianakis comes in and looks at him and we see that he's physically picking things up and hurling them at walls. Yeah. Um, that sort of breaks the fact that he's not doing that telekinetically as well. Yep. I have read some theories behind Birdman. My favourite Lloyd is is the dream. It's a dream, Birdman. Oh, um, yeah. That's the easiest it, uh, pin to pull. <laughs> it is, isn't it? I mean... You know, Seven was a dream. It never actually happened. It was all in Brad Pitt's head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of heads in seven, no. <laughs> um, look, uh, I feel like the the one I read, the explanation I read, it, it tipped a few things that, you know, in the dream common dream scenarios, people are naked in public. He was in Times Square in his underpants, you know. He was running late, he can fly, you know, there's things happening in his, in his dream that, um, you know, are common things that happen in dreams, pretty much. But what I thought is he wins over the critics in his dream. You know, he's basically performs a play that made him want to be an actor. This is like the stuff he didn't get to do in his life. He's relevant again. You know, he's mm. in the news. He proves that he's more than just Birdman. But the thing that really tells me perhaps he died and all of this happened in a moment before his death, you know, is the flash of the jellyfish at the beginning, which is recycled at the end. You know that shot of the jellyfish? Yeah, I think so. You never notice it at the beginning because, to be honest, like, it's so fast. Nobody would notice it. The fact that at the very beginning there's that weird quote where it's sort of like, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but it's something about, you know, did you get everything you wanted out of life to be beloved and all this sort of stuff? Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that sort of says that he's looking back on his life and maybe uh, I've heard a few theories that he died during the jellyfish business right where he tried to commit suicide and he never came back from that and that everything that happened in the entire movie besides that was all sort of in his head yeah you know i mean do you have an interpretation 
I d- no, I didn't interpret this as a dream at all. <laughs> what what That's I right. what I liked um uh, uh, the themes that this movie addresses in particular method you got method acting with uh um the Edward Norton, Edward Norton. Shiner. yeah I think he did a great um terrific role then I love how he talks about how he's really alive on stage and there's that uh you know that address with his impotency like he can't perform outside of the theater but he can inside the stage you know and it's this awful scene where he's trying to almost rape the actress you know it just really uh, attacks the viewers and the audience you know just like wow it's, i found it a very confronting scene but it's also very comedic as well like hilarious when he gets up and he's got you know still a big erection and things like that and i love the conflict between a respected actor of the stage versus a movie star and we always hear what's a movie star and what's an actor you know joseph um uh, orson wells famously said to joseph cotton you're, you're not a you're not going to be a great actor but you have all the qualities to be a star and I, I thought that was a mean stab at joseph cotton joseph cotton of course worked with with wells all throughout his life and you know was a big movie star but never i guess wells never saw him as this great um actor um you know and i feel that there was that uh, a touch a, a big touch on that on this film Birdman where you got Michael Keaton representing the star from his you know and let's talk about that as well Michael Keaton and his uh, and his um role as Batman prior to, you know and he lived that sort of life and he quit after Batman 2 but I don't think his career declined at all I disagree with that yes he didn't hit the megastar status of Batman but still he's been a very respected actor but never really hit that big fame again and uh, I, I, I want to know if it's really what went through his head when he read the script and went okay you want me to play this role <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's even that nod to the fact that he hasn't done Birdman since 1992, which was when Michael Keaton was last Exactly, yeah. There's that great quote in the film where uh, he's talking to the critic, Mike Shiner, played by Edward Norton, and he says, she says, uh, aren't you ever worried I'll give you a bad review? And he says, I'm sure you will if I ever give you a bad performance. (laughs) And his ego, and he's just like so knows his own everything. Such a great role for Edward Norton. I was like cheering he, for him. He the was whole terrific. Time. He really dominated the scene when he came on, and he was given the great, um, the the great lines, you know, and just the how he because the previous actor for uh, that he was that he replaced wasn't great he got hit by that light and there's an argument that michael keaton made that happen and then when edward norton comes in you see this real quality of acting you know really elevate just like wow i I love also as well the conflict um again this is a very angry film there is that layer to it and there's a little bit of a hint uh, at the very beginning when Michael Keaton's looking at the TV and we see Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr. And, you know, Birdman is telling him he's got nothing, you know, on us. You're just like, whoa. <laughs> it's so interesting that they they have Robert Downey Jr. on the TV. He asks for a replacement. He asks for Jeremy Renner or Woody Harrelson. And they're firing but, off. No, he's in this action movie. He's yeah. in this, yeah. <laughs> But Michael Keaton doesn't exist in this universe. He's obviously Regan Thompson or Regan Thompson. So that's crazy. Like, couldn't he have just played Michael Keaton and had that kind of layer to it? (laughs) And it would have been Batman in the background or try to get around that copyright. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, this is, you assume this is Michael Keaton's best performance. This is the best we're going to see because it's amazing. Yeah. And I don't feel like you can top it. And obviously this is kind of like that moment where Colin Firth won the Oscar for the King's Speech and he says 
first thing he says is I've, I feel my career peaking you know like <laughs> this is the moment you know um, or like is this like the Mickey Rourke, you know, in The Wrestler? You know, you want to see him have this comeback. You want to see him become relevant again. It's some, someone you've loved in the past. And, uh, you know, you you want Michael Keaton back up on that podium, I suppose. Yeah, I hear always the, the curse of the Oscar. Once you win it, you know, you can never really come back to that sort of quality, uh, you know. But I, I personally don't believe that at all. Um, but I, I, it it just depends on what roles comes their way and what. My, but Michael Keaton, um, he's hitting, you know, a young, skinny man can always play an old fat man, and Michael Keaton, you know, he's hitting an older age, and I'm sure there's going to be a world of roles to play, but they are limited roles. There's certain things he can't do unless they CGI really well. Uh, but I, I like to say he's hitting King Lear territory now. <laughs> yeah. As well, I think he's next. He's doing like a King Kong movie as well. So I mean, that could be good. What is that? A King Kong movie? Like they're remaking yeah. it? Okay. No, I don't think it is. I'll, I'll dig it up um, while we discuss something else, and I'll try and uh, tell you by the end of this. I like the um, critical aspect of this movie as well. Like they go on about movie critics, and Dave, uh, I, I like to think we're not so much movie critics. We talk passionately about movies, what we loved and hated about it. I don't like to say that we're movie critics because I don't think that's our profession. And uh, a lot of modern movie critics are ex-filmmakers, you know, people who went to film school, so they know how to make um, films, or they've made several films prior to getting into it, like vlogging and things like that um so you're getting that with modern critics the old critics and this is what the what's what's depicted in this movie um by the actor lindsey duncan who played an incredible role in rome you guys should definitely check out hbo's rome i think it's terrific what the character that she's depicting is from that old the the old critics yeah maybe she was an actor for a bit maybe she did a couple stage plays but she is a full engineered critic you know her weapon is literally the ink and paper you know the her pen and she can destroy plays with just or or, or make plays really famous with just um you know a few words on the newspaper and there is a very angry monologue that michael keaton has about critics in general and i do feel a lot of that is interjected with how the film uh, makers feel about critics that you know there's so much effort a person uh, makes there's so much effort that goes into making a movie you know or making a, a stage play and in the the character that's depicted in Birdman, uh, played by Michael Keaton, throws his all his finance into it. He's losing friends left and right. He is really throwing his soul there, trying it to pursue. I don't know if it's grand art, he's, he's or, or grand. Um, again, the good old days of when he was Birdman. But he's he's trying really hard. And this critic says outright, "I'm going to destroy you. I don't care because you guys got to learn. I hate you know modern movies and <laughs> what you guys represent." Yeah, it's interesting, like in, uh, in I think it was Lady in the Water, I can't recall, but there's a film critic character who M. Night Shyamalan kills. Great comparison, to, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Wanted to kill his critics, yeah. And I mean, when you put a critic into a film, you're basically saying to the critics watching that film, this is how I see you. And I suppose letting the critic change their mind by the end of this film is a good move because... They believe in sort of art again. They say this has created a new art form. Yeah, it's really interesting. Just to quickly cover off on Kong, it's called Kong Skull Island 2017. Uh, The blurb on IMDb says, An action-adventure story centred on King Kong's origins 
and it also stars J.K. Simmons, who's coming hot off of Whiplash and will probably get the supporting actor if Edward Norton doesn't, and Tom Hiddleston, who played Loki in The Avengers. <laughs> awesome. So we'll see what happens. Who's directing, does it say? Uh, currently attached is Jordan Voigt Roberts. Okay. Uh, I'm not really familiar with the director. He looks a little bit like Peter Jackson, <laughs> like a young young Peter Jackson. He is known for, well, The Kings of Summer, 2013, Single Dads, 2009, Successful Alcoholics, and uh, he's rumoured to be directing Metal Gear Solid. Wow, okay. Which, I mean, he's a TV director. He's done a few different TV series. So, I don't know, this would be the biggest film he'd ever be attached to <laughs> um do you want to talk about how angry this film is towards the modern day superhero movies and i just want to say i have nothing against modern day superhero movies i absolutely love them i think it's a fantastic time i grew up with comic books i was a comic book fan um i th- I, I used to think i was a comic book nerd until i actually met comic book nerds and i'm like oh i don't know anything about comic books <laughs> um i find that with star wars fans i never know all the detail that star wars fans i feel know. that with star trek as well like i go yeah i love star Trek, and then you meet Star Trek fans, they know every inch of the ship, and you're like, oh, I just watched the show. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't speak Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> but w- w- with how angry this movie is, and that that scene where it culminates in his near breakdown, and uh, Birdman is there with his whole suit and everything, and we see the helicopters firing at a monster off screen, and the monster comes, you know, and all that, and there's that really aggressive dialogue, goes, no one ever wants to see this philosophical talking crap, they want action, and I at that moment, I felt the director Alejandro was just was just screaming at all the people in the theaters, just going, "This is what this is why Transformers is so successful. Mm. This is why there's a Transformers one, two, and three, and four because of you. The reason why films like this cannot can barely exist. You got actors, you know, throwing their heart and soul is because of you. You know, um, sorry, throwing all their money and everything they got, their whole sanity is at stake, and everything like." that and for nothing really you know (laughs) and yeah this film also has a very angry monologue um from macbeth by william shakespeare you know um out out brief candle life's but a walking shadow you know that monologue and it's you know i I don't i don't think he's a homeless man but just an actor doing street theater and just screaming that monologue out i think it was a bit um you know a bit over the top having that little in there but uh, it's just a great reference point to how far to remind people how far the theater is like it is a long time ago interestingly enough though shakespeare you got to remember was a very popular artist back in his day like he would have been i don't want to say a michael bay but he's he wasn't you know destitute his plays were very popular <laughs> it's interesting i think the thing that the director is trying to say when he's doing doing that speech with michael keaton i agree he's saying this is why films like this uh, you know, it, it, what does it take to get through to people? You know, this is why people are writing, directing, starring in their own stuff, you know, because they believe in it, because it's art, all that sort of stuff. It's interesting that that whole sequence with the explosion and everything, for me, I can see they grabbed onto that for the trailer. Yeah. And, they, and they went, we'll put all this in the trailer. People will come into the room. We won't put any of that existential stuff. But when that whole speech is like answering the people on IMDb who are going to say, I didn't want this talky bullshit. I wanted <laughs> yeah. action. Like, and he's responding to that within the film, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. It was angry in parts, for sure. There was also kind of... Uh, like, the fact that the father-daughter relationship with Emma Stone 
he does recognize that he's failed her and he does sort of come to terms with that and there's kind of some nice moments there where you really feel for him and as well the speech edward norton gives to emma stone where he says you're like a beautiful mess you're like a candle burning at both ends you know you can't be invisible you are special that sort of stuff and then she kisses him for the first time i know that was all cheesy and everything but i quite enjoyed i that liked well. it yeah i thought it was great i thought there were wonderful speeches in this i'm saying i think it was probably it's probably going to win the best uh, original screenplay i love that speech as well where michael keaton explains how george clooney was on the flight with him and therefore you know that farrah fawcett died on the same day as michael jackson and that if that plane had gone down clooney would be the focus you know that he's a footnote you know that his death would be insignificant he's looking for that significance the whole time and and emma stone says to him you don't matter you're not special get over it you know and it's funny how he becomes relevant by the end everything he wanted happens yep so if this isn't a dream lloyd (laughs) uh, how do you explain at the end when he has his new nose uh, he stands out on the window and then do you imagine he's committed suicide well uh, the question is what she's staring at and i think when the director cuts away for that it doesn't matter you know he's at the point now in his career he's on the rise and i think she's looking at a bright shining star her father (laughs) it doesn't matter what's happening what where the reality is going or anything like that but what i do like about that ending is that it leaves you with these discussions oh what really happened you know what's going on there you know i love that um that little flavor to it you know what did that girl say at the end of um la dolce vita to the main character when she screams it out the beach and he goes what uh, you know, gestures, I can't hear you. And then he goes, oh, don't worry about it and just walks off. What did that girl say? At the very end of that movie, Bill Murray and Scarlett Lost Johansson, what did she whisper in his ear? No one knows, you know, I don't know. It could have been the, the answer to life, you know, <laughs> or anything like well, that. But it, it, Scarlett Johansson knows, but she's just keeping it between her and Bill Murray. Exactly, yeah. So it, 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 I love that layer to it. Um, personally, I was just at that point in the movie where I was so blown away going, wow, I didn't care too much what happened, but yeah, having that, you're bringing up a whole dream um, sequence of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely has that layer to it. And I think that's one of the strengths in this movie that you could read that aspect into it. I just, uh, it's the answer that sort of jumped out at me. And I I really think the jellyfish were important, like showing us that flash of them at the beginning and end as if that attempt to kill himself, you know, was very important to the whole film. Of course... He does shoot off his nose, which I thought I'd just quickly read off Wikipedia. Cutting off the nose to spite your face From is an expression <laughs> is an expression used to describe a needlessly self-destructive overreaction to a problem. Don't cut off your nose to spite your face is a warning against acting out of pike or peak, sorry, or against pursuing revenge in a way that would damage oneself more than the object of one's anger. Absolutely. So it's interesting to me that his nose comes off his face in that suicide attempt if it was a cry for attention or an accident mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it. Did you see parallels here as well to Fight Club? Like, no one really understands the ending of Fight Club except for you, Dave. You're, because you're a, a... Dave, by the way, is a massive Fight Club fan. It's probably your favourite movie of all time. Is that right? It probably is, but you're really putting me on the spot. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the comparisons and the parallels to Fight Club. But where he Edward shoots... Norton, obviously. Where, <laughs> well, where Edward Newton sh- Norton shoots his mouth and his character, um, Tyler Durden, dies, 
I don't get that at all, and not many people do. I've spoken to so many people, and at the end of this, where he shoots his nose off and you think he's dead, in a way, Birdman himself has died, although we do see a flash of him sitting in the toilet, he's shaking his head. Actually, I take that back. I don't think he's dead. I just think he's muted now. His voice has been silenced because Michael Keaton chose to go another way rather than back to what Birdman wanted. You know, Birdman yeah. wanted him to go back to the star, back to the popcorn, back to the Marvel movies. You he still, defied him, yeah. Exactly, but Michael Keaton defied him, and by shooting his own nose, as you say, to spite your face, uh, in a way relates to that. Do you see the relation to that in Fight Club? Maybe I'm not making <laughs> Maybe that's not a good no, comparison. <laughs> interestingly, um, there's a comic series coming out, which is a sequel to Fight Club, and uh, Tyler's... Uh, basically back in his mind and um, takes over and kidnaps his son, who's about 10 years old. And so he has to kind of channel Tyler again and think back and kind of, you know, bring back this monster out of himself. It's kind of, if you think about the Hulk with Bruce Banner and the Hulk, I suppose he can't get rid of the Hulk entirely. He can just suppress it and not turn into the Hulk. So... Uh, if you think of Fight Club the same way, you know, the narrator, you know, suppresses Tyler Durden by the end. And in the same way here, Regan Thompson suppresses Birdman. Yep. And I suppose doesn't need to have that constant voiceover. And, yeah, it's uh, just narration. that the ending of Fight Club, the image was so strong when he shoots himself in the mouth. Tyler Durden collapses as if his head has been blown off. I can't remember if there's makeup or actual discharge from his head, but he just drops as if he's been shot in the head. And that's what played the confusion on me. I'm like, okay, so he shot himself in the cheek, but Tyler Durden's brains are out. You know, I didn't get that part. I suppose he's not real. So by doing that, he's telling himself he's killing Tyler Mm -hmm. Durden. You know, he's shooting himself to hurt Tyler Durden. Yeah. Um, there was smoke coming out of Brad Pitt's mouth and there was a, a bloody exit wound at the back of his head. Oh, okay, sure. Um, in Fight Club, I believe. Having that voiceover and that crazy kind of multiple character element to Birdman, I thought it was an interesting choice to show Birdman so late. Yeah. I thought maybe the poster could be alive, that he could be in the mirror talking to him, that you could kind of jump on the magical realism of Birdman earlier. As well, seeing Birdman in the trailer in that sequence the only sequence birdman is in following him in the street we'd seen still images of that leaked when the movie was being shot uh they also you know obviously highlighted in the trailer and i thought okay this birdman character is going to be following him around like a you know a cloud over whatever he's doing in lots of sequences maybe birdman could have been sitting next to him in the bar you know invisible to everyone else i thought he was underused yeah do you agree? And a great costume as well. Well, I, I thought um, they hid him really well, and when he did appear, it had that power. Wow, you're looking at his costume. Wow, that looks really cool. And then he's flying. You know, that looks really um, awesome. I don't know. It just had a really good build-up for me, and I guess too much of him would have just been, I don't know. But, yeah, yeah, um, he was definitely underused. Like, uh, I would have liked to have seen a lot more of, the, more of him. Uh, i got to ask, Dave, um, what was the audience reaction to? Did they laugh? Did they, like, was it your audience big? Uh, I was in an intimate uh, 36-seat cinema, so it wasn't like a huge uh, audience. I think that hit all the right notes, and I think, um, like, mostly what we got was the laugh at the right moments. Um, Wow, so your audience was laughing. We were the only ones laughing. My group? We found it humorous, yeah. My group was the only ones laughing. It's like no one knew this was a comedy. Like, it was, you know, like, I was just like, guys, it's funny. (laughs) 
How do you know Mike Shiner? Uh, we share a vagina. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. I love Zach Galifianakis. I thought he did a fantastic job. He's going on about how much he loves the press at the end. And when he comes out, he's just barking at them. Get away! Get away, you savages! You parasites! <laughs> yeah. Yes, he's funny, isn't he? Too, very two-faced, H&B kind of guy. <laughs> uh, last thing I'm going to say about the whole dream thing. Yep. I've just because I've got a note in front of me that symmetry of where he says I don't exist at the end of the play before he shoots himself how he keeps saying I don't exist this doesn't exist none of you exist he almost spells out that it's a dream yeah. and, and maybe it's too obvious and there is a dream sequence in the center of the play that he adapted like I don't think it's in the original text but he projected a dream sequence which comes into play in and out uh, of the movie gosh damn that's such a great technique the one camera the one steady cam just the variety it went with it and the style of this movie goes against the Michael Bay style of movies where it's heavily edited you know you got that heavily editing close up extreme close up long shot you know and this is just has to stay disciplined to a one steady cam sort of look i think yeah it just had this great energy it, it, it like he used that the filmmakers i should say use this technology really well and all the actors hit all the right beats um you know just had a great energy absolutely and the other thing was i kept looking for it they'd wiped the camera away from all the reflections <laughs> there were several sequences where the camera would have been visible in a reflection absolutely when Naomi Watts is comforting the actress who missed her periods and then she's not pregnant, um, the camera would have been visible in those shots and they've wiped it away. They've gotten rid of it. And I was very aware that I should be seeing a camera, but the fact that they got rid of it and still had the camera come in so close and everything like that and floating around, it was very like immersive and that was like a really well-achieved feeling i think uh one criticism i, I hear um was the lesbian kiss scene with uh, again naomi watts who again had a great uh, lesbian scene in the terrific movie mulholland drive very beautiful lady <laughs> two very beautiful women in this uh, a lot of people criticize it didn't need to be there like why is it there it's just such a yeah. patriarchal thing like a male thing to do and it kind of is it's just like yeah maybe didn't need are, are all- oh, i'd love to weigh in yeah the um <laughs> The, the fact that they're actresses, like, it seems like they can do whatever. I felt like those things were put in because those female roles were not very meaty at all. Mm. I looked at it and I think it's a very flimsy... The actress who says, I've missed my periods, I'm going to be pregnant. I'm not pregnant. There was no, like, uh, if you think about it, a character arc for her. Yeah. So there was sort of nothing tying... Like, she didn't need to be on as much as she was. Um, but to att- attract these actresses, and Naomi Watts, of course, was in 21 Grams with this director, but then to bring her back, you want to give her something to do. Mm-hmm. So they imply that she's going to move on with Riggin as well, and like Edward Norton thinks that she's going to move on with him, and there's sort of a little bit of a love interest there because she comes in and thanks him and has tears in her eyes, you know, because she gets to do Broadway. There's more of a character there. But then they throw in the kiss, and I think what they're trying to do is give them more to do as actors. Yeah. Well, it, but it I could think it was be unnecessary. A, yeah, too. I thought it was unnecessary. It could be a truth of the stage. There is that sort of heightened thing, and that's what some girls do. But I don't believe that. I, you know, I just felt it was a bit gratuitous, <laughs> if I'm saying that word correctly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, look, it was completely. It was gratuitous. It was a. It was unnecessary. I mean, some people wanted to see it. Probably the people who wanted action and stuff in those films. <laughs> I suppose, like the highlight for me was how good. Michael Keaton was and secondary to that how good Edward Norton was uh, I enjoyed both of them a lot um, I haven't seen Whiplash so J.K. Simmons 
acting performance apparently is really good and he's supposed to win best supporting actor so i can't compare them yet but um do you think it's going to be this one or boyhood car moscas i i'm not too sure i am terrible at award seasons uh but uh, it, it'll be interesting if Birdman... Well, it's a really interesting stage at the moment because the two big things that we're talking about is Birdman and Boyhood, and this is really the year of the independence, you know? Like, you know, all these Hollywood movies are so much invested in it, and, you know, these two uh, great films uh, with much smaller budgets just um, just going to town. It's, it's terrific. It's interesting because Interstellar is the one everybody says missed out, and it's probably the most Hollywood esque uh, kind of absolutely, film. Absolutely, yeah. You know, you got the big A list cast and uh, you know A list director of Christopher Nolan, and a very safe kind of story. You know, love conquers all that sort of thing, and he meets with his girl. We we talked about this. You can check out our Interstellar podcast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, I just suppose having that ambiguous ending maybe ruined it for some people. I, I read some criticism about that. If they'd cut it 10 seconds earlier and you never got her reaction, if she just walked over towards the window and then it cut, people would probably say he killed himself yeah. and that we didn't want it to be but a But I downer. like what you said, how it's a Mex- uh, Spanish... Magical realism. Magical yeah. realism. So I love it how it had that element. You know, it always, you know, stuck with that, stuck to its guns the whole time. But I don't think that's necessarily the heart of the story. There's so much more to read um, in there than just that sequence. If you're going to say oh the whole film was ruined by that last scene you know i think that says a lot (laughs) yeah well the play within the film was called what we talk about when we talk about love probably love is you know the key thing that maybe comes out of this yeah uh the word amor a-m-o-r in spanish was on the title card what's the subtitle for this movie it's called birdman and then there's a subtitle to it that no one ever remembers the unexpected virtue of ignorance virtue which becomes, of ignorance <laughs> which becomes the um the review the critic does a review and it's called the unexpected virtue of ignorance wow in reference of course to michael keaton's character yeah well i mean i suppose she was ignorant of him performing he was ignorant of being such a shitty father mm-hmm. it's about the things you didn't know or you were ignorant of uh and how they were a good thing Mm. it was virtue to them i suppose it's amazing how the cost of his performance is not only uh his himself physically where he destroys his nose by the gun so he's he looks like a completely different person at the end of the film but it's also his his relationships with his daughter with with his wife with the girlfriend uh with his friend zach alfagnakis who seems like his only actual friend that's really looking out for his career and himself yeah you know and the cost of his sanity you know it's it's really you know um like that the, again that scene where he's walking into times square he just has to go back into the th- into the th- stage to complete that scene you know i love the look in his eyes it's just this hungry pursuit of something that we're not entirely sure of he's not entirely sure of is it high art is it grand art but he just knows he needs this for his soul you know <laughs> he just has to keep going no matter what and at the you know it cost everything he put everything into this um into this play and uh, i think that's a very beautiful um thing in this movie absolutely and uh well done to everyone involved obviously it's receiving awards and recognition and i think it's well deserving uh michael keaton month will continue on our youtube channel uh the link is on podmeifyoucan.com uh we've reviewed some michael keaton films that are quite obscure 
uh, or hard to find on DVD and uh, we've summarized Michael Keaton's performance and what is right and wrong with all of them. <laughs> uh, there's lots more obscure films on our podcast. Uh, it's on, a, on our YouTube channel, rather, uh, which is youtube.com slash podme if you can. You can uh, drop us a line on Facebook. Again, link on our website. And uh, we'll look forward to more suggestions from films and, and more this year. Uh, following February, the first one we'll be doing in March will be at the beginning of March will be 50 shades of gray. So um if you check that one out, you can look forward to hearing what Lloyd and I think about EL James's 50 shades of gray. At the moment guys, enjoy Michael Keaton month. Woo. <laughs> That's right. Enjoy while you can <laughs> before we head back into that kind of territory. Uh, <laughs> uh more from us podmeifyoucan.com. So uh thanks very much for listening. Hit it. For listening, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Pod me if you can. Movie reviews. <laughs>